0: It's such a pleasure and honor to be here today on USA Global TV and Radio. I'm Dr. Jacqueline Kerbeck. I'm the president, founder, and chief listening officer here at our network. Our show today is The Art of Creating Mental Health wealth. And our topic is mental health awareness with a guest who has been here before, which always warms my heart because I feel like we're doing the right thing when people come back and they want to continue to share their story. We'll be bringing out Dr. Jennifer Seltzer in just a moment. Before we do that, I'm going to bring out the star of our show, Janetta Barry. She is the creative genius behind this topic, this subject. And she has recently joined our USA Global TV and radio education platform to help bring awareness to people across the world when it comes to self-care, getting in touch with listening skills, and effective communication. Let's welcome Jeanetta Barry and the Epiphany Process.
1: Hello, everybody. As always, so lovely to be back and uh, to welcome any uh, new listeners and viewers and to be in touch again with existing ones always gladdens my heart.
0: Thank you so much, Janetta. And I do want to give a big shout out and congratulations to our newest team member here at USA Global TV and Radio. It's Maria Eduardo joining us from St. Martin. Welcome aboard. Thank you so much, Maria. Janetta, we're, we're, we're celebrating mental health awareness. And a lot of that has to do with being able to listen as well. Listen to yourself, listening to other people. Sometimes. We just shut people out. We, we don't even listen to our intuition. And I know that you have a lot of expertise in helping people in this area as well as many others. For people who don't know your story, I'm going to spotlight you. And if you could share a little bit and then we'll
1: bring out the doctor. Oh, thank you, Dr. Jacqueline. Uh, yes, uh, to me, communication starts with bringing your internal communication into a place of open-hearted manageability because there's so much often so so much internal conflict within us. Uh, You know how you go um, during the day, you're you're particularly challenged, and you go into that logic zone. Well, I'm going to do this, and I'll take that action, and then I'll say this to that person, and and, and then you have it all planned out. You go, okay, I'll be able to handle this even though I'm feeling quite overwhelmed or, or marginalized or whatever it is. And then you know how you go to bed, and at 2, 3 in the morning, you go, ah, and your emotions are saying, but I don't agree. How you're feeling is going, no, that that's my logic, but how I'm feeling, there's, there's not a connecting communication there. And um, this actually came about, I began studying it and researching it and, and applying it to myself, After I lost my 16 year old daughter Jennifer to suicide after she and I had an enormous argument and if I had known then how to respond to her because so much of my response came from that conflicting internal conversation I was running. And the moment I was able to start working on myself and all those internal conversations, I became very much more clear and certain and focused. And that brought out more accurate conversation that had less distortion from uh, over-logicalizing or over-feeling whatever it is that you were attached to, usually due to past fears and judgments attached to that and it made a world of difference and i've been able to help thousands of people all over the world internationally online now i've been online now for 15 years when covid happened in the world joined me i was going welcome this is where i've been and i've helped people through terrorist attacks i've helped um uh, young people who are self-harming can't get out of bed Uh, not washing, writing suicide notes, they're now living lives again because they know how to balance out that internal conversation. And then that, it's no longer attached to what other people think or say or do or to circumstances. It's all about them being able to step into their power and their truth. And then some powerful conversations come out their mouth as they can access their inner wisdom so i assist people to start accurately communicating with themselves and others and and to deal with other situations and i've called that the epiphany process so that's what i do internationally online uh in a nutshell
0: thank you so much jeanette i appreciate you sharing that Well, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Jennifer Seltzer to the program. As I mentioned, I've interviewed her a couple of times before, and she has an incredible story of how she's helping other people who are living through or living with dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and some of the things that people can do. But today she's gonna be sharing some of her story, which I always appreciate when people come forward, because as you know, it's not easy. It's one thing to talk about your work and how you're helping other people, but when you're actually talking about your own journey, things that you've been through, that is a different story. She's known as the oil doctor, and she's a clinical psychologist. She's also a John Hopkins author of The Busy Caregiver's Guide to Advance Alzheimer's Disease. She's the co-owner and CEO of Neuroscience at the Dementia Connection Institute, and her list of accomplishments, it is so long that we would be taking up time from the program without being able to hear from her her. So let's bring her out without further ado. I believe she's joining us from the Chicago area in the United States. Let's welcome her.
2: Hello. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much. As I said the last couple of times you were here, the things you've accomplished are just actually amazing that it could all be in one lifetime. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. And as I mentioned, you shared with us backstage, you're going to be talking about your journey when it comes to mental health awareness, and then we'll segue into what it is you're doing today. So take us on a trip, doctor.
2: Absolutely. So thank you for having me. You know, I... You know, a lot of people, when they go into the field of dementia care and they're working with individuals who have Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia, they often say, well, I had a loved one who had dementia. And that is the case for me. I had a loved one, a grandmother-in-law who unfortunately passed away with the disease. But that wasn't why I entered into the field. I actually entered into the field way sooner than that. Um, And it just happened that I had a loved one who developed the disease and kind of was able to help navigate the family through that process. Um, For me, you know, I've been able to share my story with a number of people of my journey in mental health. And I I feel like it's inspired a lot of people because I've been able to, you know, really grow myself as an entrepreneur and open up my own business and um, really become this kind of businesswoman that I, I didn't know I would become, but have fell in love with that journey. Um, and I honestly, if I didn't go through what I went through, I wouldn't have created, I think what I've done today, uh, maybe a version of it, but not where I'm today. Um, so I am thankful for that journey. And I can say that you know, confidently and successfully today. Um, You know, when I was 17 years old, you know, like any kind of teenager, right, you're going through all these changes, and you're not sure what's going on. And I wasn't happy with myself. And, you know, for me, I think it started way earlier than that. But I just didn't really no, I kind of just went about you know my childhood if you will and uh navigated through things and had moments where I just wasn't happy and then you know when I was 17 it really kind of dawned on me how unhappy I really was and still even at that time I didn't really know who to reach out to you know what what to do and why 17 sticks in my mind is because it was my senior year of high school and it was the first year that my high school offered a psychology 101 class and it was the first class that I said, oh, I think I'm really interested in this. Right. You know, I kind of liked math and things like that, but it wasn't really of interest to me. So, you know, I, I took that class and I and I realized I, I identified with some of these you know, symptoms that we were talking about in the class. And, um, you know, through that process, I was like wow, he knows me. I, I feel like I'm just not right. Um, again, didn't reach out, though, because back then, you know, we didn't talk about that you know it wasn't um as widely accepted as it is now and i still think we have a ways to go with that um i think the pandemic has i know a positive thing out of it it has really put a, a limelight on mental health and it's you know allowing folks to come back and and or go to treatment if they've never been to treatment and um that's just a wonderful kind of you know You'd want to make lemonade out of lemons, right, uh, of the pandemic, that's one thing that came out of it. So, but back in the day when I was 17, you didn't talk about that stuff. You know, my family didn't talk about that kind of stuff. Um, I knew in my family, there were some cousins that had some uh, diagnosed, you know, mental health issues. I had a grandmother who had some stuff, but again, didn't know much about it at that time, being kind of young and, and just learning about it. Um, So I was actually diagnosed at 19 years old. So two years later in the depths of the row of mental health uh, issues, I was diagnosed with um, obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, uh, major depression and anorexia. And for me, I I remember, and, and, you know, I appreciate, um, you know, when we talk about suicide, because I know that, you know, you had said that you had lost your daughter to suicide and, you know, the epiphany that I had, you know, which is serendipity to what the name of this show is called, is I remember sitting in my uh, room at home, my bedroom, you know, I was sitting up against my closet door and I contemplated suicide because I didn't know what to do and I didn't know where to go and I didn't know what the next steps were. And I remember that day I had eaten very little, um, it wasn't functioning in all cylinders by any means, um, and I contemplated it. And I cried and cried and cried and cried. And I said to myself, I've got to reach out to my mom. I've got to tell her what's going on, right? Thinking, of course, that she didn't know what was going on, but she knew what was going on. But again, she doesn't know what, you know, she knew something was wrong, but she didn't know what it was, right? And so I said to, her, said to myself, I've got to talk to her. And so I finally did. I didn't attempt, which was wonderful. And I went to her and she was so open. And she said, I knew something was wrong. But I just didn't know how to, how to approach you. I didn't know how to, how to talk to you. Right. And so as you had talked about, right, communication is so important and she didn't know how to do that either. And she thought by leaving me alone, that was the best thing for me. And it actually wasn't. Um, so I went to her and, you know, she brought me in to see a psychiatrist at that time. Right. And back in the day, again, it's it used to be medication first, right. And then maybe talk therapy, And I'm going to kind of talk you through how that actually should be reversed. Um, So I went to a psychiatrist. I was put on medications. You know, they helped. You know, um, I eventually went into therapy, was able to do all of my services outpatient because I really responded well to the treatment. Um, You know, but through that journey, um, and and again, it wasn't perfect. There were ups and downs, there were relapses, absolutely, you know, through into my 20s. Um, But for me, it was something where I, really held on to using coping skills. That was really what helped me prevail, not the medication necessarily. Did the medication help? I think initially, absolutely, right? My brain is changing, right? It responded well to it. Um, But people do need to be careful about putting medication or using medication at a young age because it can alter your brain in a negative way as well. So we have to be careful with that. And that's why I really recommend therapy first you know, gaining coping skills through that therapeutic process. And then if medication is needed, try that later, right? Um, And that's when, you know, coping skills are just not enough per se, right? Um, And so through that, I was able to uh, be able to uh, really kind of gain control of my life because I was able to choose what coping skills worked for me. I was able to guide my own treatment, my own recovery. And I felt a, a huge success with that. Um, you know, I'm proud to say today, you know, that I have been without medication for over 15 years, um, and doing it on my own. And again, I'm not saying that medication is not necessary because it is in some cases that should be evaluated by a psychiatrist, should be evaluated by a psychologist who maybe is thinking that maybe therapy is not enough. Maybe we need to take it to the next level. Um, but I do highly encourage folks to try therapy first, right? Um, it's covered by most insurances. You, you know, merely have to pay your copay. And in some insurances, even during the pandemic, if you took advantage, they didn't even charge you your copay. And some are actually, you know, minor ones are doing that now, but most insurances are kind of back to you charging your copay. So it doesn't cost a lot of money uh, to, you know, to go to therapy and you gain all these coping skills. And more importantly, get a third perspective, someone who's not involved in your life, like Mom, dad, or or sister, brother, boyfriend, husband, wife, whatever it might be, right? You don't have that, you know, that kind of judgmental perspective that comes with a family member who cares about you and wants the best for you and think they, they know what's best for you. That third perspective is non-judgmental, right? They're there to kind of give you some you know, a different view on something you've never you know, had before and that really helped me, you know, through that process. I actually still see a therapist myself today. I think everyone should have a therapist regardless of what's going on in your life because we all need a little tweak in our brain and our mental health. We all need a little support, you know, life sometimes can be difficult and when you have that psychologist in your back pocket or that therapist in your back pocket, it really can be a life changer for you. You know, just like we all have dentists and women we have gy- gynecologists, right? We need to have psychologists on hand as well. Um, you know, and so for me, it was learning that coping skills really kind of outweighed the medication. And I was able to uh, weed myself, you know, with a doctor, of course, off the medication and utilize the coping skills for the last 15 years, which is wonderful. Um, And so, you know, with that said, I've been able to, you know, when I decided to go into this uh, uh, field, it was actually when I was going through my mental health journey, I said, you know, what I'm what's what people are giving me is working and I want to give back. And so when I graduated high school, I went into community college and I actually took every psychology course there was because I wasn't sure what exactly there's a lot in psychology that you can um, you know specialize in if you will. And at the time it was called abnormal psychology, now called clinical psychology. And I absolutely fell in love with it. And I said, this is what I want to do. And so I ended up going to grad school uh, thereafter, getting my master's, my doctorate in psychology, specializing in clinical psychology. And so my first half of my career actually was, um, you know, working with individuals with mental health issues. For, you know, I, I worked in California. I worked in Florida, anywhere from outpatient to residential inpatient um, I worked with folks with eating disorders, with people with depression, with people with OCD, right, and and in other areas too, addiction and, and whatnot too. Um, and you know, I was so grateful to be able to give back because you know I knew it helped me, and I and I was able to guide people in a way that you know would you know in educating them on what their options are right You don't have to go to medication right away. let's try you know uh, talk therapy, let's try coping skills first. but if they were adamant that they wanted to try medication, then of course that referral would would happen right. Um, and so with that said, I, I was able to kind of utilize that you know in in my career and, and then my success from there. Um, and then I happened to after I graduated my postdoc, I kind of fell into senior living. I opened up um, for a long-term care company here in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, One of one of uh, their mental health uh, behavioral health programs um, in one of their nursing facilities. And for those of you who don't know, in Illinois, the mental health um, services here are not good. Um, Over the last 20 years, they've unfortunately uh, dissipated, uh, especially for those who can't afford therapy. You know, those maybe on Medicaid and things like that. Um, And so. Unfortunately, they've transitioned into nursing homes, and then that's where they're treated, for the most part. And so uh, I said to myself, if this is the way Illinois is going to do mental health, then I'm going to make sure if I open up this unit, this uh, this this place where these folks are going to come, this residential um, uh, component, right, that they are going to get the best treatment as possible. And so I actually was able to uh, rise very quickly within that company, um, opening up a couple of other units. We also were able to um, I was able to then take over some other clinical programs within that company, including their dementia program, which at that time, I believe they had 12 neighborhoods, um, within nursing, uh, within their nursing skilled facilities, as well as assisted living. Um, and then I was able to grow that to, I think by the time I left, it was like 17, something like that. Um, and so with that said, it was, uh, you know, I kind of fell into it and I absolutely fell in love with dementia care. And so I really spent the last 12 years dedicated to dementia care. And within that, I knew I could use the skills that I had, you know, before being able to give back to the field, you know, I was able to, uh, you know, seeing that medication was overused with folks who have dementia to manage their, what people call behaviors, right? I like to call them behavioral expressions or response behaviors, right? They're responding to, Folks. They're responding to environment, they're responding to stimuli, right? And for me, I was able to show folks that you can use various non-pharmacological coping skills, or what I call sensory-based tools, uh, to be able to interact and connect to these folks without there being the side effects of all these medications. Again, not saying that there isn't medication necessary at times, there is. But for folks who've never been on, you know, psychotropic medications to manage mental health, they it's it's really a detriment to their their whole physical well-being when they're put on that medication later in life. Right. Um, And so we want to try as many non-pharmacological tools as possible. And there's been tons that have been researched. And so, you know, through my journey, I was able to develop a model of care called the Dementia Connection Model. And we educate um, family caregivers and professional caregivers through our institute, the Dementia Connection Institute. And you know, with that, you know, we've been able to reach so many people so far. We just opened up in January. But within this year, we've been able to reach so many people and train over 1,000 of people, which has been exciting for us being in our first year, and really be able to, again, give back in a different way. But giving back to those family caregivers, giving back to those professional caregivers to say, why don't we try using your hands and your heart first? Let's try that first. If it doesn't work, then we'll try medication, right? And I've had success after success after success. Um, As Dr. Jacqueline said, my book came out last year, The Busy Caregiver's Guide to Advanced Alzheimer's Disease. And in there are tons of tools that you can use. So fill your toolbox because you'll be able to walk away with at least a few tools, if not many more, to be able to engage and connect with the per- people that you care for, um, so that's really that's really my journey in terms of where I started, how I got to where I am today, and I'm just thrilled to be able to share it with people. And I hope it does inspire folks that if you, you are suffering with any kind of mental health, even if it's minor anxiety or depression, get help now. Don't wait until you have to hit rock bottom like I did, or you know Janetta's you know daughter. You know, don't wait. Um, and so I hope that has helped people.
0: Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Jeanette, you're on mute. So many things that you said there, doctor, I'd love to to drill in on because first of all, just sharing your story like that, that is so helpful. I started thinking about when I was your age at that time, 17 and things that I was thinking about doing And I think it's, it's good for people to know that someone who's accomplished as much as you have, how successful you are, that this is what you went through and this is what you go through. So again, a big kudo and thank you for sharing that. Jeanette I know you were saying
1: something go ahead yes I I, I wanted to first of all say how wonderful it is that you can step forward and and share your story so openly and I'm sure uh, as a therapist having walked the walk it makes such a difference to anybody that comes to you for those coping skills because i do really believe it is about the coping skills and and so many people approach the 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 challenge of mental health issues as though people are broken and need fixing and and I can hear from your side, having walked through it, that's you, it doesn't even enter your vocabulary because you you're there going. It isn't about it isn't about being different. It isn't about that that they are the ones with the mental health issues and we're okay. It's about a lack of coping skills. And I just love to hear a therapist. Step into that zone and really understand it. So I wanted to give you that um, that feedback, which I'm sure you get from from patients all the time. That you they're going, oh, you really get me because you've been there. Do you find that happens?
2: Um, well, you know, there's there's a code, you know, that we, you know, you don't share in that therapy session your own journey, right? It's it's just a code that ethically you don't do that, right? Because whether you've been through it, whether you've not been through it, right? The the hope is that with the skill set that you have, that you can help people, right? But to your point, Janetta, when they're talking about what they've been through, I know exactly what they've been through. And so, you know, it it allows, you know, a a higher level of empathy, if you will, you know, you know, therapist and, and psychologist, you know, it comes with, empathy comes kind of with the with the degree, if you will, right, you, you have this kind of embedded in you. you, you you went to school because you are empathic, and you want to be able to put yourselves in people's shoes. But I do believe that because I've been through it, that I have a higher level of empathy, because I know exactly what they've been through. And so, you know, when I'm telling them, you can do this, it will get better, it can get better, because I know it, because I lived it, right? I don't say that part to them, right? Um, But I openly do talk about it in, you know, forums like this. So is it possible that, you know, some of my prior patients or current patients see this? Absolutely. Do I mind? I do not mind, because I want them to be able to see that I can talk about it openly and freely, and I'm not ashamed about it at all, you know? And, you know, it, it it really does come down to You know, when you talk about it, that, you know, people, you know, people aren't broken who have these different kinds of symptoms. That's true because on all, on some level, we all have anxiety, right? We all function on some level of anxiety. That's what keeps us motivated and going and all those kinds of things, right? I tell people, you know, between zero and 10, humans function on about, about a one to a three anxiety every single day. Unless you're the, the Dalai Lama, right, or Deepak Chopra, maybe not, but you know, but we, you know, most of us have a, a some level of anxiety. So we all have to have stress management skills, right, daily coping skills that we can utilize that will help us to manage that stress that comes in because life happens, right. And so you know, whether that's journaling or whether that's exercising or whether that's using essential oils, right? And that's hence why I got the name The Oil Doctor is really because it's a symbol of the use of non-pharmacy sensory-based tools, right? Um, and, and of course, using aromatherapy is one of my go-to tools as well that I use daily. Um, you know, so it's, you're right, it's, it, you know, we need to be able to be able to talk about this freely and know that people are not stigmatized by it anymore. They shouldn't be. I think that we need some work with this still with in the dementia care field, right? I think people do talk about it. Um, you know, mom has it, dad has it, wife has it, those kinds of things. But when the symptoms start to appear, people are still ashamed about it, and they don't get help until really later on when it's more, you know, detrimental to their life, right? Um, but the key is, and especially with you know if you know, we're starting to see some of these uh, drug therapies come out, right? Um, And there's different, of course, um, success rates with them. You know, I, I don't think they're high enough yet that people are kind of lining up for it, but those need to be started very early on in the disease, even when they might have mild cognitive impairment. And so if we're not talking about it that early, that is a problem because those drug therapies will not work if the person is diagnosed not until they're, let's say, in the moderate phase, right? And if we, and let's say you're not interested in the drug therapy component, you wanna use the non-pharmacological sensory-based tools, you can do that early on uh, because we all benefit from sensory-based tools. And when I say sensory-based tools, let me talk about that real quickly what I'm saying is when we, we take in stimuli from the environment, okay, negative, positive, and that's all preference-based. It's all, you know, for example, if you listen to music, there might be some music that you listen to that you don't really like. And so you maybe turn off, turn the radio or you, you know, put on something else. Right. And then there's music that you do like. There's some music maybe that makes you feel motivated or happy or excited. Right. Um, And so you want to play more of that music. And so, you and I, who are, have all of our faculties, we can discern that stimuli when it comes in because we can decide to turn it off the radio or turn it to something else, whatever it might be. People with dementia, as they're advancing, they can't do that. Okay. So when the stimuli comes in, you know, they are just, it's like accepting that stimuli, very similar to how children are before the first five years of life. Any stimuli that comes in, they're just influenced by it, negative, positive, whatever it might be. So you can kind of see where I'm going with this with people with dementia as they're advancing you want all positive stimuli to come in to really improve that quality of life. Okay, Um, And so when we intervene really early with these kinds of coping tools, sensory based tools, and I use those interchangeably, you know, it's um, it can really help to enhance their brain health. Right. And so there's lots of studies out there that talk about enhancing your brain health. Um, from the you know the food that you eat to and how much how m- movement do you have your socialization right what you're exposed to right um, you know different things you can add to your regimen like essential oils that really help to boost that brain health right so if we intervene early with when it was mild cognitive impairment if they're able to talk about it and get help right they can potentially slow down that disease in some respects right um, may not be able to cure it right there, we know there's no cure once diagnosed right? But that gray phase, right? I mean, if you think about this, folks, you know, age 65 and older, right? 15 to 20% of that population have mild cognitive impairment, okay? But only 15% of those individuals who have MCI go on to develop Alzheimer's disease each year. 85% do not. We have to understand why, right? And a lot of it's pointed to lifestyle change, right? So what I'm saying is if people talk about early on with dementia, right, as we're learning with mental health, then we have some intervention we can do, either maybe with drug therapy, if you'd like, with the new ones, maybe that are coming out, or with, you know, non-pharmacological tools, you intervene early, can really help with that person's journey, right, to live the best quality of life for as long as possible, So that is something that I think is really imperative too. I know I kind of went off on a tangent there when we talked about that, but I just wanted to share that as well. So
0: that's really helpful. Thank you. Doctor, I have a question about that. So if a person is someone who is taking care of a person in this situation, then we have to make those decisions really for them, right? Should we Should we put on music? Should we have essential oils? Should we have crossword puzzles? Should we, all these different things. How do we know if we're on the right track with what we're doing? Do we see an immediate change in behavior or, and does the patient have to be accepting of what it is that we're, we're having them do?
2: good good question yes so so early on you know if we do intervene early and the person's still able to have their faculties to problem solve and have good judgment and insight they can be part of those decisions but about moderate phase to obviously late um, there unfortunately um you know don't have those problem solving skills they don't have those good judgments and insight to know that they need those things so that's when the caregiver has to step in and so really it's knowing the person, right? So if it's your family member, you can certainly say like, I know, like, I'll just talk about my mother, right? My mother loves Barbara Streisand, loves her, loves her. Um, So I would know that if she developed dementia, I would want to play Barbara Streisand. She probably will be singing it every day, right? So you kind of take what you know about that person and you say, okay, whether it's music, whether it's food, whether it's um, certain smells or it's things that they see, you know, what did they like about those things, right? So Uh, go back to my mother again, my mother, um, avid gardener, right? Um, So when you garden, that is visual stimulation, seeing the vegetables, seeing the plants. It is olfactory because you're taking in the oxygen and the smell of the plants. It's tactile because you're touching the plants and the soil and all of that. Um, And possibly even uh, um, auditory if like there's birds chirping, right? That experience I'd want to recreate for my mom because, you know, she would, identify with it. She would love it, right? And that's a very multisensory approach. So it's knowing the person. Now, maybe it's a patient of yours, a resident of yours, and maybe family aren't involved. Sometimes that happens. I've worked with many of those residents that have come into our facilities and their families aren't involved, unfortunately. So we have to figure it out. And it's honestly trial and error. It's playing music and seeing, you know, what does their facial expressions look like? What does their body language look like? You know, do they seem calm? Do they seem happy? Right? We have to read those to know is this working? Is this not working? Um, or if you play that certain music, do they, let's say they're in a wheelchair, do they wheel away or walk away? You know, um, do they have a scowl on their face or do they seem to become an irritable? Then that music, that type of music is not for them. Right. Um, and so it's trial and error if you don't know the person. Until you be able to, until you can fill that toolbox, right? So it may take a little longer to figure out what those sensory-based tools are, but certainly try, try again because um, you will be able to fill your toolbox with those things. Um, and it's it's just it's uh, that can be a challenging process when it's trial and error, and I get that, uh, but it's so worth it because once you find those. T- even if it's two, three tools, it will be worth your while because you can use those over and over and again, and you want to use them over and over again every single day, because what happens over about a four-week period. Okay, so back to your question, Dr. Jacqueline, about is it an immediate response? Yes, it is. It's an immediate response because um, when stimuli comes in, it influences the limbic system of the brain. And in the limbic system, we have two important organs. There's more there, but we've got two. The amygdala, which is our uh, responsible for our emotions. So developing our emotions. And our hippocampus, which is uh, developing our memories. So when our stimuli comes in, it influences our feelings and our memories, okay? So there's an immediate response within seconds. Um, but within a four week period, people with dementia will start to learn what these various stimuli mean, and they'll be able to, if, if you're doing them consistently and you're, you're using them, let's say uh, attached to a part of a day, they will start to then assimilate and know, okay, this is morning, this is afternoon, this is evening, right? They'll start to know what time of day it is. They'll start to know what they should be doing. Oftentimes people with dementia will say, what should I be doing? I don't know, right? Um, they'll know what they should be doing, right? And so it allows them to feel just more safe and secure and calm because there's structure, there's consistency, right? And so they'll start to learn that. So if you've heard a myth that people with dementia can no longer learn, that's not true. It does take about four weeks when you're stimulating stimulating those senses in positive ways. Um, So they'll learn that. But there's an immediate effect too. So it's kind of now and later, which is fantastic. Wow. So much there. Thank you. That really was very helpful. I appreciate it. Absolutely.
1: know you're on mute. <laughs> I'm having such fun here with my electrics. I, I don't know if you noticed, I keep on being plunged into darkness. And I'm really surprised my Internet has decided to stay in um, and not disappear with everything else. Um, <clears throat> yeah, for me, I, I've noticed up until now with uh my mum was was certainly early onset dementia before she passed and i've got quite a few friends who have uh actually mothers who are are dealing with it and have dealt with it and and some have passed and what i noticed in in all the years that i've watched friends and and with my mother is that people tend to um, treat the person like they've lost their mind, so they just feed them all the information all the time and repeat it. And we had this conversation some weeks ago, Dr. Jacqueline, on another show, where um, very good friend of mine, um, her mother was in a, in a retirement home, and she'd bring her back for birthdays, and Audrey would just sit there going, "Where am I? You're in Africa." Uh, am I not an island? No, you're not an island. You're in Africa. Okay. Why am I here? Because we brought you here. Where am I? And of course, this is where it went on and on and on all day long. And everybody would say the same thing back to her again and again and again. Like, you know, we've just got to answer her because what else do we do? And the one evening I sat there, and after about the 20th time, I went, you know what? I'm actually going to ask her So she, where am I? Audrey I don't know where are you? Am I in Africa? Yes you're in Africa oh okay uh, why am I here? Um, why do you think you're here? And we uh, kept on doing this again and after about the fifth time she went where am I? and then this little smile on her face she said you're not going to tell me are you? <laughs> and then <that, laughs> That was just after after months and years of her, that's all her conversation was. And I just feel that it's so easy to label a person and then say, that's who you are. And we, we just have to accept their lot instead of going, well, is it their lot? So I just love the fact that you've got these different alternatives because I've never heard of it before. People in my sphere of influence have just accepted the lot of whatever it is that's happening. So again, goodness mm-hmm. to you.
2: Thank you, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, there is this this notion of, well, this person has been diagnosed and so I have to do for them now, you know? And you think about how children learn, right? Um, the the idea was when, when, you know, for the first five years of life, the only way children learn is by watching and doing and watching and doing and watching and doing right over and over again. And we eventually let go of that spoon. We eventually let go of that glass. We have, you know, so it's the same thing with people living with dementia. Let go of it. Let them do what they can still do for themselves. You know, it's called when we are doing for them, when they can still do for themselves, it's called excess disability. We're creating them to become disabled. We don't want that, right? You want them to be stay independent. So whatever they can still do, I know it's probably takes a longer time or they maybe seem to have some struggles with it, but let them do it. And so a lot of times in dementia care, it's not about the person living with dementia that needs to be treated per se, right? we, the caregivers need to be treated. We need to change. We need to adjust just like we do with young kids, right? We observe our children. We kind of, we put two and two together of what might be going on with them. If they're crying, if they seem angry, you know, maybe they just hit their brother, you know, cause he's irritating her. You know, we, we observe that and we then intervene with the best way we know how, right? Um, And so the same thing with people with dementia is we have to adjust and observe and, and then intervene, but, you know, allow them to do for themselves, because they will hold on to those skills for so much longer. And I even say break down, break down things into parts, right? Maybe let's just say like brushing their teeth, maybe it is more difficult for them to put that toothpaste on the toothbrush. But can they still go like this? Let them do it, right? So don't just assume because they can't do one part of it that they can't do any of it, right? Um, and even simple things like let them cream their coffee and, and put you know butter on their toast if they can still do those things, right? Um, it may take them longer than usual. And I know you've got to get to work or you know you are frustrated because you've got to get to the next thing. Or maybe if you're in a um, skilled, you know, skilled nursing facility and you've got another resident to take care of, it, it's you've got to slow down because they need those skills. Because what happens is if you create them to become disabled, guess what? More work on you for the rest of the time that they're with us, right? And if you work as a staff member in a facility, more work on you for all the people that you unfortunately created to become disabled. Why would you want to create more work for yourself? Don't do that to yourself. We have to preserve our sanity and our self-care, right? So a part of preserving your self-care, right, or to create that self-care for yourself is allow them to do for themselves so they can do it for much longer. So you're absolutely right. There's that kind of notion of, well, they can't do that. Here's another thing, too, is we, you know, especially with communication, we were talking about that earlier, you know, people with dementia will start to lose the words of what things are called really early on. OK, so they stumble upon it. You know, what is that called? Ooh, you know, they, they're trying to find the word in their mind. They can't find it. So our assumption is if they don't know what it's called, they don't know what it does. And that is so not true, right? They're able to hold on to the meaning much longer as long as you show them or they are able to, you know, be able to pull that word out, right? They still know what it does. You know, I'll give an example. I have a highlighter right here, right? So if they don't know that it's called a highlighter, right, Um, then, you know, they still know what it means. Like, as long as you show that to them, like, here, let's grab our highlighter, they'll know what it does. Eventually, they'll learn lose the meaning. That happens around the late stage of dementia, if you can believe that. So for a very long time, they'll know what this does, okay? Um, so we can't assume just because they don't know the word that they don't know the meaning. That's not true, okay? So again, back to what you were saying, you know, it's, uh, we have a lot of assumptions that happen because they're losing their faculties, but we have to kind of go with it and see what can they still do? What can they not do? Right. And with the things that they can do reinforce, reinforce, reinforce. Okay. Um, and cause a lot of this stuff too is procedural based where we have learned it. Cause we've done it so many times like eating and walking and all those kinds of things. So that's going to hold on for a lot longer. Sometimes I call it like you have to just brush the cobwebs off. Like maybe you have to walk with them for a couple of steps, but once those cobwebs are brushed off, they might be able to walk on their own, right? You're there, you're assisting your, in case they fall, whatever it might be. With feeding, you know, if you help them, like, you know, there's a hand in our hand technique that Tepa Snow came out with that I trained people on uh, within my model because I think it's a fantastic tactile stimuli is, you know, it's, you're basically kind of under their hand and you're assisting them with feeding, right? But eventually that caregiver can let go and that person may still keep going because they're just brushing that, those cobwebs off, right? Um, so again, we, we can't assume Observe and then react, right? Observe, react. So,
0: wow, I feel like I just had an epiphany moment there. Thank you. And I, <laughs> I know we're running out of time. Of course, I have 10,000 questions, but um, I'd love to have you come back. One question Excellent. before we close up, thank you, is if the person was used to doing something every single day for years, like for example, going outside to get a newspaper. But the newspaper isn't delivered anymore for the last three years. But every every day the person gets up and goes outside to look for the newspaper. Do we stop the person from doing that and say, hey, there's no newspaper. We don't get a newspaper. What is like when someone has a routine that is incorporated in their life, but it doesn't make sense to the caregiver, what do we do?
2: I would still say, let them do it. Go get that newspaper, you know, and if you need to. Go pick up a whole stack, you know yourself, from you know the Walgreens, or even if it's a magazine, um, I would still do it because it it get some exercise, which is really important because that is their, maybe their movement for that morning. Let them do that. Um, and, you know, the reality is, is as the disease progresses, they're going to start to live in those moments that happened before. So they're going to keep going to get that paper because that's what they always did. So let them get that exercise, you know, um, and if you have to go pick up a whole stack of papers and you bring it there and you drop it on the the driveway for them, then I would say do that because that will bring them the best quality of life.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. How can people get in touch with you and who would you like to
2: contact you? Yes, thank you. So definitely um, check us out at dementiaconnectioninstitute.org or you can email us at support at neuroessence.org. You know, we uh, definitely want to be able to help as many people as possible. Our Our mission really is to educate people in dementia care all over the world and even internationally. And so we want to be able to reach as many people as possible because our vision is that if us as caregivers are trained and equipped and feel confident and confident what we're doing, that person living with dementia will be able to have the best quality of life as possible. Um, So reach out to us, get on our email list because we have a lot of exciting things coming out for 2023. As we're still developing all of our services so get on our email list to stay tuned and we hope to see you soon
0: thank you again another fabulous interview filled with great information and again seriously i have like literally i have eight topics right now i can think of i'd love to have you come
2: back and speak with us on. i know how absolutely. busy you are but if you can come back that would be lovely absolutely that'd be great thank you for having me yeah
1: uh, dr jennifer thank you thank you for sharing this because the transparency that Dr. Jacqueline and I wanted to create in this show with really heart-opening practical solutions to problems that most people out there think are unsolvable. And you've been able to step into that zone today and give people the possibility of a different perspective. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.
2: I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. We wish you continued success and look forward to having you back again.
2: Thank you. Take care.
0: Thank you. Bye. Well, that really is exactly what we're all about here. Education, hope, and inspiration. And I know personally, I feel very inspired. I Every time we have her on, I learn something new and I look at my own behavior and what I'm doing. And I think, yeah, you need to work on <laughs> that. <laughs> bad Jackie, bad, no. So, <laughs> you know, it's right, something that's else.
1: another program. Yeah, that's another story.
0: Uh, Jeanette, is something else I'd also like to discuss with the doctor and you on another episode is she was talking about when she was 17 and how she was feeling and the thoughts that she was having. And it kind of brought up something for me when I was in my 20s and I was dating this narcissist and i got really depressed i went to five therapists i ended up i think i was on wellbutrin or something and it was really because i was in a relationship that was completely and totally dysfunctional and i kind of hated myself and so what i thought would be interesting to talk about in a future episode is sometimes we feel the way we feel because we're in a situation that isn't the best situation we're in a relationship that doesn't work and of course What is it that drew us to that person? Why do we continue to stay? But that fact that we're with them, the fact that we're staying with them has a major impact on how we feel about ourselves. And instead of saying, hey, this is the problem here. I made this choice, not a great one. I continued to stay, not the best. But now I'm basically punishing myself, medicating myself, because I don't want to remove myself from a situation that isn't healthy. Does that make sense?
1: It makes so much sense, and there are a hundred billion reasons why one does stay, c- according to our value system. So, to be able to unpack that in another, in another episode would be amazing. I'd love to explore that. Fantastic. So yes. I'll reach out yes. to
0: the doctor also. And I, I just know from from having been a young woman at that time, there were plenty of other girlfriends I had that were going through the same thing. So it's not like it's changed. It's still something that we, we need to look at. And it's sort of like she was talking about. It's like the chicken or the egg. Therapy or medication, and many times people are they're pushed right to medication. You know, when you go to a doctor, you you fill out the form. At least here in the United States, and it's um, do you have any suicidal thoughts? Are you depressed? If you answer yes, forget it. That is, <laughs> we're, we're fast tracking you right over here to medication. And maybe that's not the case. You need to speak to somebody and explain this is what's going on in my life right now, and
1: this is why I feel the way that I feel. So.
0: Let's do that. and another
1: sure. thing another thing um I'd like to add here is that in other countries around the world, the dealing of such things, even from professionals, isn't as holistic. And and it's what I had to deal with with Jenny, with it being her fourth attempt that she finally succeeded with. I mean, the malmanagement of her depression and eating disorder was horrific because... Uh, it, you know not all the world treats it in the same way even the ones who are qualified it absolutely astounded me at the at the time they tried to break jenny in in rehab and like, rather like being in the army and that it was bad behavior that needed to be broken to to remold that teenager she was 14 at the time and i and i think that would be a really good thing to cover probably in a, another different episode but not all the world is, and I don't even think in UK, um, the standards are, are where they should be. Personally, having worked with quite a lot of my clients who have gone to conventional therapy there and it's been malmanaged, mismanaged. So it, it'll be an amazing topic to address. Thank you
0: so much. And Janetta, we're running right up against our next program, which is you, our expert presenter on Talking Heads. Tell our audience what they can expect to hear from you today.
1: Yes, th- today really is about grief and loss. Obviously, it's something that I, I w- had to walk through and nearly didn't. I I, I went through a torrid time in, in my loss of Jenny. But we, we're going to essentially talk about grieving of a lost a, a loved one. But of course, grief comes in many, many um, different packages. So it's understanding that there's always an impact and having to deal with loss in different forms and and how to approach it with an open-hearted understanding rather than than judgment that, again, there's something wrong with you.
0: Thank you so much, Janetta. And I also just want to let our audience know one more thing. There's always something else janetta is one of the stars of our new show coming up it's the spelling bee game show please do mark your calendars for this upcoming monday at 2 p.m eastern standard time 7 p.m greenwich Mean Time. and janetta will be competing with caroline hewer the harley street stress expert for the title of queen bee speller <laughs> so i am really- at
1: my 10 p.m
0: oh that's PM. <laughs> She's going to have to be extra sharp folks for that. No. <laughs> well, thank you again. It's been so much fun and such great yeah. information. Thank you to jo- Dr. Jennifer Selter, And thanks to each and every one of you. We will be right back. Jeanetta will be on talking heads. Please do stay with us wherever you are right now. We'll be coming back in less than seven minutes. Bye everyone. <laughs>